0: You
1: got problems that you ought to be concerned with You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's back With Money with Gabby Done Hello! Hello and welcome to Bad with Money, a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. I'm your host, Gabby Dunn. This is another listener-generated episode. I am really excited to read uh, all the messages and hear the voicemails that you guys sent me about selling your body to science, about medical testing. Uh, some of the stories are are really similar to our pregnancy episode. Very vulnerable. And um, and I'm honored that you you felt you could share with me and my audience, and um, and your fellow listeners. So let's get into some of them now, because uh, we have a bunch. So this is an email from anonymous, and it is one of many we got about plasma donation. Uh, so it says, "Hello, I just wanted to tell you about my experience donating plasma." I was targeted by an online ad that a local plasma chain, BioLife, was promoting $700 for eight donations in a six-week period last year. Oh, wow, that's a lot of money. I could see why you would be taken in by that. I went for the first donation and the intake time took two hours. They then attempted to put the needle in my vein and it caused a hematoma. Okay, so trigger warning for anyone listening, uh, if you have medical trauma or if you are squeamish about stuff, this is not the episode for you. Please skip it. They were so surprised and said it never happened before. They then did my other arm and it happened again. I only let them try the other arm because they said I wouldn't get paid if I didn't. I think they just had a new plasma tech because I've never had this problem before when I've given blood or had a blood test. I might have bruised a little, but not a hematoma. It was hard as a rock for a week and took three weeks to go away on each arm. It went from a deep purple to brown over time. I'm a small 4'11 woman, so I guess they were not used to working with smaller people, but it was such an unpleasant experience. I knew it would be weeks before I could try again, and I wouldn't qualify for the higher paid bonus, so I said F that and focused on other ways to earn side money. I'm in the process of saving money for a house, and my partner has bipolar disorder. He hasn't found a med combo that works for him, so he can't hold down a job. We're waiting on SSDI and VA disability to come through. Really, F the SSSA and the VA. So extra money really helps. Thankfully, I've started a side business in addition to my day job and have found other online money sorts of things that work well for me. So I don't need to try plasma donation again, which is great because I really don't want to. If it was just the regular $40 donation they pay, I don't think it would be worth it because of how traumatizing that was. Thanks. Yeah. uh, Speaking as a bipolar person myself, I totally get it. Uh, We have a lot of disparate people's experiences selling plasma And some of them are similarly traumatizing to what this person wrote in. Um, So this is an email also about selling plasma from Clay. Howdy, Gabby and maybe Mal. No Mal today. Sorry, guys. (laughs) It's me, Clay again. Hello, Clay. When I was at one of my lowest points, I sold my plasma twice a week, almost every week to pay my rent and or pay for groceries. I at the time for my apartment a couple years before the pandemic was almost four hundred dollars plus some utilities as I was splitting the cost with my ex friend who didn't have a license or working car and was still living back in her abusive parents house near her job. Most of the time I donated plasma with the boy I was dating at the time who was cheating on me and lying to me about it and was also dealing with court costs from a shoplifting arrest, which I helped pay for to keep him out of jail. Because he usually didn't have a job since he was enrolled in university, lived on campus, and partially at mine in the summer, and had no car, plus little to no familial financial support anyway. Wow, that was that was some tea you just spilled. I didn't know where this was going, and then I got to the shoplifting arrest, and I was like, this this is a tangled web you've weaved, Clay. We started going to a plasma center in the city, and it was anywhere from a 15-minute to two-hour wait before donating, usually between one to two hours. Eventually, they built another facility in the town I used to live in, so we made the 45-minute drive there to enjoy 5-30-minute to wait times. Once you're set up with a needle in your arm, which does leave a permanent scar if they stick you in the same spot every time, I learned, it was about 40-60 to minutes to pump. I left with the money immediately uploaded to the card they gave me, and the more times you went each month, they'd give you bonuses— I usually made my entire month's rent or more as long as I went twice a week according to the schedule. And my vitals and levels were within range each time I went in. Otherwise, I would be blocked from donating for a whole week, losing out on bonus funds and wasting a trip. This happened to me only once, and they check for things like iron and protein, blood pressure, etc. each time before you donate, along with a long questionnaire that was on a digital kiosk. Now, technically, my boyfriend and I weren't supposed to be doing this. We were having a sexual relationship and it asked you if you have ever had sex with a man if you are a man. And even if you are not, it also asked the same question, or have you had sex with a man who has had sex with men? I have not been able to donate blood since college uh, because I cannot answer that question like the way that they want me to answer that question. I was, I'm shocked. I mean, I was shocked. Now I'm not shocked now, but I was shocked at the time uh, when that precluded me. Eventually, when the U.S. updated the blood laws to be only a one-year ban, they added within the last year to the end of it. But they specifically mentioned they test the blood for HIV two times, along with a whole slew of other things. And how is everyone supposed to know if the men they slept with have slept with other men? Plus, there are many more risky sexual behaviors that it doesn't talk about, like unprotected sex with strangers, or if your someone is secretly cheating on you, like mine was. So it felt discriminatory, and I was committed to the civil disobedience of answering no, despite the ironic fact that my then-boyfriend and I were selling our plasma together. This brings me to the end, finally. After exactly one year of selling my plasma, CSL Plasma banned me from coming back. They do a yearly checkup and asked me about the medications I had listed at the time that I started selling my plasma and if I still took them. I said no, they were for depression and anxiety, but my doctors and therapists that I was working with agreed that it wasn't helping my treatment-resistant mental illness and I wasn't any more at risk without them, so I'd been off the medications with doctor and therapist approval for a while and was continuing to see my therapist regularly. The person, I couldn't tell if they were a nurse or a doctor, was actually called in when they were not at work specifically to ask me this question in person and then said I was now banned for life. Gabby, for life. Because my doctors and therapists and I all agreed my medications I was taking a year ago weren't helping. I had been off them for months and at this point, I can't imagine what sort of risk I could have been posing by continuing to donate. But I was told I couldn't donate to CSL plasma ever again. So F them. Thanks, Gabby and Mal. Wow, that had a lot of twists and turns. I didn't know that they had changed it to within a year. Somehow that feels even less effective. <laughs> it's, it's so discriminatory and so bizarre. Um, and I kind of, I can't get over the visual of you and your boyfriend going to donate together and having to answer that question. I also don't fully understand why they would ban you, I guess, because you weren't honest about your medications. A running theme that comes up here is how much time is spent doing this versus how much money you make. So like the the time spent versus the reward. The ROI on this does not seem to be as good as one would hope. Okay, here's a voicemail from Corey.
2: Hi, Gabby and maybe Mal. This is Corey, uh, she, her, calling in from the Chicagoland area. And I am calling to tell you about my experience selling my body, as my dad says, via donating plasma. I started donating to the Red Cross Whole Blood in college because I don't really have any side effects from it. So I started donating plasma for the good, good money right before the pandemic started. I will say that I went with a company that I did a lot of research on, and they are one of the least sketchy companies out there for donating plasma, but they still sometimes would have you waiting for two to three hours to lay down in a bed and give blood, and you couldn't eat during those hours, and I had a couple of close calls with fainting that I had never had in my 25 previous years of life. It was really, really good money, and it was Honestly, usually worth your time, but only because I get out of school very early as I'm a teacher, so I could go before the rush and not have to wait in line. For people who had to wait till 6 p.m. to go and donate, they would be stuck there sometimes for hours until 9 or 10 p.m., which is ridiculous. The tattoos, after six months, you can donate, and usually they will give you big bonuses for coming back after six months, but... They do still have really problematic practices with people who, for example, have sex with people with penises who also have sex with people with penises, um, just like donating whole blood does. Anyways, um, if you can do it, if it is a place where you can go and is successful, I recommend it. But if you are not being treated fairly or your specific location can't handle the amount of people that they have coming and it's putting your health at risk I would say please be very very careful about it it was great to keep me hydrated and to kind of keep my health in check but I was very lucky in that regard and I had a lot of friends who couldn't get their blood pressure low enough to even get through my referral bonuses thank you for all that you do and you know my ADHD diagnosis yes I'm that person have a great day
1: yeah. As you can see, people have had a lot of similar experiences, but have come away with very different conclusions. <laughs> thank you, Corey. I I started this uh, episode being a little bit down about the subject matter, but your very chipper voice has somehow turned this around for me. <laughs> so thank you. I really appreciate you calling in. Um, I love hearing your voices uh, and it really like helps me feel like Wow, my listeners and I are, are giving and taking. You know, they hear my voice. I hear their voice. So thank you, Corey. I appreciate that. Okay, here is an email from Anonymous. Gabby, TLDR. Although medical research has historically had major unethical components, there are now regulations that require IRB approval for all human research. I think it is ethical to participate in medical research. I've participated in NIH-funded medical research when I was pregnant and postpartum. When I was deciding to participate in medical research, I considered, one, safety for me and my genetic relatives. Two, is it beneficial for me to participate in this study? AKA, is my inclusion in the data set going to contribute something significant that could help an understudied group? And do I think this study is broadly important? I decided to participate in medical research because I wanted to help contribute to medical professionals knowing more about pregnant queer people so they can treat us better. The time commitment is not small, and the compensation will not be large. If you're trying to earn money, only engage in research that is convenient for you. I was going to fetal monitoring because of gestational complications, so I was next door every week anyways. I was also incapacitated in a way that precluded me from other types of work that pay more. The extra cash was awesome, and it was something I felt great about contributing to. Also, I heard you briefly conflate plasma donation and participating in medical research. In plasma, blood, and breast milk donation, something from your body is given to another person so they can use it. Donation is in quotes because it really is a sale. The donor is paid and the receiver pays. Plasma and blood are often used by people who need blood because of an accident or disease. Breast milk is often used by Niku babies. That's uh, neonatal ICU babies whose moms aren't producing enough or any milk, and they need breast milk to survive. However, medical research doesn't help anyone on any kind of acute timescale. It is for the advancement of scientific understanding, which probably isn't going to have very tangible benefits for years. From the donor's perspective, you're still giving something for money, so I understand why those two were used as synonyms, but I thought it was worth clarifying. No, that's really great, Anonymous. Thank you. Pleasantries. I'll read these. I've been listening for years and I really enjoy your content. I've been trying to listen to Bad With Money the day episodes drop as much as possible. I've been listening since your early days on YouTube and watching your journey has helped me feel comfortable in my own identity. Although I am a somewhat toast woman married to a woman, I've lived in a lot of spaces that aren't great. It was fairly easy to feel safe and stay in the closet as needed in the rural places I've lived before I met my wife. But once we built a life together and eventually got married, it got more and more difficult. As an example, the department office staff in grad school referred to my wife and I as sisters for three years. We were in the same department. We both interacted with the office staff on a weekly basis and were very in view every day on our way to and from our labs doing normal wife stuff. At this time, we were often asked by undergrads, CPAs, dentists, etc. Where did you get married? Because they had no idea it was nationally legal. Oh, my God. Honestly, these are the most bland examples of microaggressions I can think of from our time there, but there were far worse things that happened. During this difficult time, I really felt you and Allison's work was a refuge. The comfort of that media helped me complete my goals in school before finally being able to move somewhere better. Oh, I loved the JBU sketches, etc. for y'all's honesty and fearlessness. Consequently, I love the JBU podcast as well. Bad with Money is so cool, and I dig the formal journalistic style of Bad with Money. I know I'm going to learn something new and valuable every time I hear the theme song. It pushes the boundaries of what I would normally think about and helps me feel more informed. Plus, it helped me get the tools to save up enough to move from a conservative rural town to a thriving gay oasis where our daycare teachers make it a point to distinguish between mama and mom. Oh my God, this is so ugh, anonymous. After years of planning and arduous saving, I carried and birthed our baby this year, and we bought a small townhouse shortly thereafter. We moved from a one bedroom rental to a two bedroom with our wild dog and energetic baby. Thanks, JBU, for the emotional support, and thanks, Bad with Money, for making financial tools accessible for these big changes. My background I am a white, cis, queer, educated late 20s mother of a young baby. My wife does biomedical research, not with human subjects. I conducted graduate research in biology at an undisclosed location. Though my work was unrelated to human subjects or human medicine, I have eight years of extra education in biology. I also taught human anatomy with donated bodies and have several close family members who work in the medical field. All that is to say I am comfortable being a study subject because I understand the terminology, I know the funding organizations, and I feel comfortable that I can recognize red flags in the context of scientific research or something that claims to be quote-unquote scientific research. My considerations when deciding to participate in medical research. One, safety. A, study type. Research usually falls into two categories, observational or experimental. Observational tends to be safer. Observational is where researchers can't really manipulate much, they can just observe. An example is studies involving environmental toxins. Researchers funded by a reputable source cannot expose a person to something dangerous on purpose. They can observe folks who were exposed to something like pesticides through an occupation and look for common patterns. These studies take years to secure funding when you consider the grant writing, numerous rejections, and preliminary data collection, time spent building specialized expertise. Experimental research means the researchers are manipulating something to see what changes. The best example I can think of is a drug trial. Researchers test the drug in the lab outside an animal for years. They test in an animal for months or years. They test a small group of people, then a larger group, before releasing it to the population and documenting any problems or concerns. Anything experimental involving humans requires rigorous review and often takes decades to fund and complete. For the work I was a subject for, it was mostly observational kinds of measurements, like looking in my blood and urine and poop, sending out behavioral surveys, asking me what I ate, and watching me interact with my child. If you're putting anything in your body, like participating in a drug trial, it will be less safe. Drugs have been tested for years before the medicine gets to you, but you can experience the side effects they warn about or worse. B. Funding. Investigate who the funding source is. The ideal case is a large organization like the NIH who has publicly available resources to understand the ethical considerations the investigator is subject to. If it isn't the NIH, it should still be going through the IRB. You should still ask yourself if anything feels bad about the type of experimentation or the organization. Does the work seem useful? If you feel any alarm bells, don't do the study. To get a study funded, researchers need to go through months, if not years, of rigorous review. Some funding is very biased. For example, a pharmaceutical company wants to make a drug to sell it, not completely understand it. Even in the case that there's a good funding org, that is not going to be a perfect stamp of approval. C. Who is doing the study? The person in charge is called the principal investigator, or the PI. They will have likely published a lot of other research, and you can snoop them out on Google Scholar and at the institution's website. Read their descriptions of their study participants in papers. Does anything feel bad or weird? How are they describing these participants? If you feel any misgivings, don't do the study. D, my data? Question mark, question mark, exclamation point. I usually dig deep into anything with DNA as it pertains to me and all my genetic relatives. Is the data anonymized in some way? Who has access to the data? How is it stored? How long is it stored? Will it be used in future studies? Are they just looking at one very small specific thing or are they looking at the whole genome transcriptome proteome proteome you're smarter than me anonymous a genome-wide study can tell you a lot more than a targeted study looking at one or two genes genome is the whole cookbook gene is just one recipe caveats racism sexism and homophobia are extremely pervasive in the traditional medical system in the U.S. The traditional medical system is still very dangerous for a lot of people The things that make me feel safe do not and should not be assumed to make other people feel safe. However, I do think the scientific research community is accustomed to change and is working hard to improve. Fundamental to the process of science is forming an idea, spending countless hours, weeks, years, decades testing it, then finding out you're completely wrong and updating your worldview drastically. I feel like there are enough individuals in the traditional medical system that are trying really hard to not be horrible, and scientific research is one avenue to do that. That's why I felt comfortable participating in medical research. I'm not an expert by any means on the topic of racism in traditional medicine. I'd recommend siblings, Dr. Uchi Blackstock and Dr. Oni Blackstock, whose work focuses specifically on bias and racism in healthcare and HIV, respectively. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. Thank you for that information. They both have MDs and an intimate understanding of bias in traditional medicine. There are many more excellent people out there fighting racism and bias in traditional medicine. Two. Do I have demographic value? In most cases, I don't think it is very valuable for me to participate in medical research because I am a middle-class cis white educated woman and there is plenty of research conducted on white people for the benefit of white people. From a demographic standpoint, medical research has been primarily designed to benefit cishet white men and it has opportunistically focused on mostly college-aged and educated white people. It is only very recently that minorities of any kind have been allowed to guide and or be considered as important in medical research in the United States. I participated in medical research while pregnant and postpartum with my child because pregnant people are often not studied. As a pregnant person, there are not a lot of answers for your basic questions. Emily Oster has some really interesting work on this. Thanks, Gabby. Uh, I'm really moved by your pleasantries section. But yeah, thank you so much for writing all of that in and for creating a really good distinction between the rest of what we're talking about and medical research. So I do really appreciate that. Here's an email from Deirdre. Hi, Gabby. In response to your question about selling your body, yes, I have done a ton of medical studies for money. I have had blood drawn, MRIs done, even did some pain studies where they put heat and cold against my skin to test my pain response, and one where they shocked me. I took it as a win-win. I made some extra money, which I needed at the time, and they get medical research done. But I'd also love an episode about the pros and cons of this way of making money. i totally listen to both sides with great interest. Keep up the great work, Deirdre. You got your wish, Deirdre. You got your wish. This is an email from Marielle. Hi, Gabby and Mal. I have a bit of experience donating plasma. Like most college students, I was strapped for cash. A company, BioLife, would come to my college at the beginning of the school year to lure students into donating plasma. Oh boy, that's not upsetting in any way. I finally caved and figured I'd give it a try. Filling out my info and meeting with someone was kind of a process, but not too bad. I went to sit in the big room where all the chairs and machines are. A person came to put the needle in and missed a few times. Pretty sure they tried both arms. They also didn't get a very good stick, so they weren't able to pull out very much blood. I went a few more times to donate, but had issues with getting the needle in or pulling enough blood every time. After maybe three different visits of the people not doing a very good job, I decided it wasn't worth the time or money to attempt to donate. I've heard lots of people tell stories of donating plasma for years and having no issue, but that was not the case for me. That was seven or so years ago, and I still have proof of the attempted donations on the inside of my elbow. A couple of holes and divots. Anyway, thanks for your show. I missed the Hello Fellow Deadbeats opening. I feel like I'm still a deadbeat despite listening to Bad With Money for years. Marielle. I I had some feedback that deadbeat was kind of a negative word, so I stopped using it in the intros. But if you remember that, you're a real one. Okay, here is an email from Courtney. Hi, Gabby, just to weigh in on the genetic testing for IVF since we went through it. Okay, yeah. So in the pregnancy episode, we talked a bit about genetic testing for embryos, uh, and we got a couple emails about that. So I'm going to read them here because it does have to do with scientific testing. There are a lot of reasons to perform genetic testing on embryos. Prior to being approved for IVF, parents go through genetic testing on themselves to see if they have any genetic issues that could cause embryos to not actually be viable. After embryos are made, they can be tested for an additional cost for certain kinds of trisomy and blood disorders or actual congenital defects that would make the fetus incompatible with life outside the womb or lead to pregnancy loss, which is just something else not needed ever. But especially when you are already emotionally drained from years of trying to become parents, they aren't testing for things like eye and hair color. But sometimes other genetic differences, Down syndrome, cystic fibrosis, for example, are noted. And the parents have, maybe soon had in the post row world, the option to not use those embryos. You can be provided with the genetic sex of the embryo, XX or XY, because that is just part of what they can see when looking. Or you can opt to just have the best graded embryo transferred. You don't have to have genetic testing done, but when you are $20,000 deep into debt to become parents because most insurance doesn't cover many, if any, infertility costs, what's another 1,500, hopefully to give you a better shot at becoming pregnant? As for the grading of embryos, that is up to each embryologist subject. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best
0: way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because when I'm looking to work with someone, I really need to be able to get someone fast. My job works very fast, podcasts work very fast, and I've actually been looking for an assistant and I don't need to waste time sorting through matches without getting the highest quality person, right? When I'm looking to hire someone, whether that's a grant writer or a musician or something like that, it's very overwhelming because you get a lot of messages, but you're not able to like parse through yourself Just go to indeed.com slash badwithmoney right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash badwithmoney terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work. Taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these numbers. 37,025,1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. If you have all the information about your business in one place, you can make way better decisions. And this is an unprecedented offer, meaning this is totally worth your time. As someone who runs a business, having all of this together in order to close my books, that would be invaluable. It's a time saver. It's literally the biggest time saver. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com/badwithmoney. That's netsuite.com/badwithmoney to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com/badwithmoney. Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? First, the bad news. Mint is shutting down. Now, good news. There's a better alternative, Monarch Money. Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. That's right. I use Mint and now I'm using Monarch money. It is very stressful, confusing, and time consuming to manage my finances. I've tried other finance apps. They don't really work. Like, you know, I was very committed to Mint and then I was uh, deeply sad when Mint went away. But now I have tried Monarch. It's so easy to use with powerful features, collaboration tools, intuitive design, personalization, constant product improvements. I mean, I really value a company that is proactively looking at how to make finances easier. Did you know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce? Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, also has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Can you imagine being able to have a budget app with your partner? That is wild. You can see all your finances, you can collaborate on your budget, you can get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's a very easy way to manage a household's finances. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com/badmoney. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budget app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications and more. We will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com badmoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y It is hard to manage finances with a partner, putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now and planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you.
3: At Parker, our purpose is simple.
2: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at hero.co.
1: Active opinion according to things like shape, size, and physical look of the jeans. Each person will have their own opinion, but this grading is done in an attempt to give people the best chance at conceiving after transfer. Many people can't afford multiple transfers and are, do not have many, if any, extra embryos to spare if they are thinking about having more than one child. Hope this helps, Courtney. It really does. Thank you so much. These are responses to me saying that genetic testing bumped for me a little bit in the pregnancy episode just because of of worries about eugenics, but people had really good responses. And so here's... Here's more of those. Hey, Gabby. Usual pleasantries here. Longtime listener, first-time writer, writing in about the genetic testing comment from the most recent episode. Lots to unpack here. I am a genetic counselor that works in assisted reproduction. I've specialized in helping people complete their families with IUI, ICI, IVF, embryo testing, donors, etc. for my whole career, calling myself Jay so I don't inadvertently identify myself to past or current patients. I am writing in with a bit of information for you and your listeners about embryo testing since you raised some great questions about genetic testing in this space. The vast majority of genetic testing on embryos is for spontaneous chromosome abnormalities, extra or missing chromosomes or pieces of chromosomes that can happen in any conception and are way more common than people realize. These abnormalities can result in failed implantation, pregnancy loss, or or a baby born with birth defects of varying severity, some of which are lethal in infancy. The results are then used to prioritize embryos for transfer, return to a uterus to attempt implantation and pregnancy, so that people are not putting themselves through the physical and emotional costs of an embryo transfer process to then have no pregnancy or a loss. If embryos are discarded following these results, it is because they are not expected to result in an ongoing pregnancy. The minority of genetic testing on embryos is custom designed for inherited conditions that are passed on from parents, like Tay-Sachs, as you mentioned. That's a whole different conversation, and it can be enormously challenging in terms of cost, time to pregnancy, and even just test design with any kind of family structure that isn't a heterosexual cis couple with good relationships with both sets of parents since they often need to be involved in the process. There are an enormous number of ethical considerations in this space, and the conversations only continue and get more complicated as technology advances. It also remains to be seen how the overturn of Roe is going to impact access to care, as personhood bills will provide a direct challenge to creation of embryos and IVF. Thank you for opening these conversations to a wider audience. The cost of fertility care, pregnancy, and raising children are astronomical, and the U.S. system is doing people zero favors. Thanks, Jay. Thank you so much for writing that in and for explaining that even more so. Okay, let's hear a voicemail from Jen. Hi, Gabby
4: and Mal. This is Jen, she, her, uh, from Georgia, and I'm calling in about the medical experiment uh, episode that you're working on. Uh, I just recently got um, uh, on a medical study, and so far my experience has been really uh, good, I am trying out a new medicine to see if it might be more effective for my health condition, which is uh, hypothyroidism. Um, And what's great about it is that I will be getting paid uh, quite a nice amount, which has really helped me pay for like gas and food because I currently have a part time job that doesn't give me any benefits or paid time off. Um, I am working on going back and getting some new skills to hopefully get a job that's full-time with benefits, but it's been difficult given that I also have mental health issues of, um, anxiety and PTSD. Uh, and so I just wanted to let you know that it is a benefit out there for some and, um, I do have a little concern about whether or not I might have adverse effects, but so far I haven't noticed any differences, and I think if uh, if I was going to, I would, I would probably feel it by now. Um, and given that I have a positive experience, I uh, would be open to doing something like this again. Thank you very much for listening to my voicemail, and I hope it helps with your show uh take care bye bye
1: <laughs> i love how people sign off these they're like uh anyway uh be- because it's like i i do it too when i call into shows which yes i do call into other podcasts and i'm like i never know how to be like okay love you bye <laughs> like you're leaving a voicemail anyway i love it thank you so much for calling in and taking the time and and giving us some more information i really appreciate it and for sharing about anxiety and depression, and being vulnerable. Calling is vulnerable. I know that's why a lot of you guys don't do it. So thank you. This is an email from Jamie. Hi, Gabby. I started donating plasma at the beginning of 2022. I had a difficult time getting started because my hematocrit, the ratio of the volume of red blood cells to the total volume of blood was too low. It was recommended that I up my iron to help with this. So I ate more poultry, but my hematocrit was still too low. It was devastating to go in and wait through the intake process, only to be turned away empty-handed when I really needed the money. I, I deeply feel that. It's so frustrating. The staff was always very sympathetic and helpful. They recommended taking iron supplements and not donate on days on or around my period as my hematocrit would be lower because of the loss of blood. One day, I finally passed all the intake tests. They check your hematocrit level in addition to protein level, blood pressure, and temperature to make sure you're okay to donate. I was taken back for a physical, but ended up being turned away because it had been less than six months since I had my top surgery. Apparently, you can't donate if you have had any sort of surgery within six months. Devastating. Oh my God, Jamie. I had to wait one month and went back to try again. I encountered some hiccups with low iron, but ate more red meat and stayed consistent with taking iron supplements every day and have mostly been in the clear. Every four months or so, they will take a blood sample before a donation to send off to a lab to check your protein level. The last time this happened, my protein was too low and I couldn't donate for a month. That sucked. Oh my God. I had to work on getting my protein levels up and go in to give another sample, wait for them to send it off to the lab, wait for them to get the sample back and have a doctor assess the results and call repeatedly to find out if any of this had been done yet. I have now decided to follow a keto diet because I eat so much meat to keep my iron and protein levels up so I can continue to donate consistently, which really makes me feel like I'm harvesting my body for science. Some of the staff members who work at the donation center also donate. One of them had the same problem where her protein sample was too low. She recommended trying to keep track of when they will draw your sample and to drink protein shakes the night before and day of. The donation center is understaffed and sometimes there are long waits to donate. Now I make sure to give myself ample time to donate around two hours after running late to appointments and other things I had scheduled right after donations. I also try to show up on time and schedule my appointments earlier in the day and they seem to go faster. Drinking water is really important while donating and it also helps the donation process go faster. It makes it easier for the machine to separate your plasma from your blood. The initial appointment to start donating with a physical intake forms, etc. is typically pretty long. I think I was there around four to five hours once I was finally cleared for donation. I always bring a book to read during appointments. I found that this helps when the wait times are longer and helps me stay a bit more calm than being on my phone. They have TVs where they play movies, but the captions are on and the volume is low. It all remains relatively quiet and is a good place for reading time. The staff are all very nice. I worked with the same person over and over when I was initially coming in and my hematocrit was too low to donate, and I could tell that she was let down every time too, and that she really wanted me to be able to donate. They make conversation with you and apologize for long wait times and want you to feel good and comfortable. I suppose that's part of their job since they want you to keep coming back and giving your plasma. It all seems like a lot, but to me it was worth the money. When you are a new donor, you get $100 or $125 per donation. After that, it's around $50 or $100. During one of my first months, I made $760. Wow. Now it's around $600. I am fortunate to not have a ton of expenses at the moment, so that's a big chunk of change for me. They do have rules where you need to donate twice within a week in order to get a bonus. I've basically scheduled my life around going in on Tuesdays and Fridays because you need two days between donations and can't donate more than two times in a week. It helps to get a schedule down so you don't go in too early and get turned away. They also text out codes to get bonuses if you donate on certain days or times and show the staff the code when you come in. They put the money on this debit card type thing that I take to a MoneyPass ATM at a 7-Eleven to get cash off of, then deposit the cash at my bank. There's a small fee that the ATM takes, which makes me mad. I wish it was easier to get the money directly into my hands or my account. I have noticed that I can feel low energy after donating, especially if I go in to donate when I'm already tired. Thank you for all you do with the Bad With Money podcast. I've learned so much and look forward to learning even more and hearing more from you and Mal. Congrats on your marriage, Jamie. We are not married yet. We are not married yet. We are engaged, but thank you so much. And thank you for this very thorough email. Here's an email from Molly. Hi, Gabby. Molly, she, her, here to share my experiences selling my body to science. During my senior year of college, I lost a significant portion of my financial aid, including the opportunity for work study, due to my grandma dying and minimally changing my parents' financial situation. Oh, no. Because I was attending a large public university attached to an educational hospital, I participated in a number of research studies after applying to any I might qualify for. While most of the studies were coming to a lab for an hour or less to take surveys or to test my vision slash hearing and paid $15 to $20 for my time, one study was far more involved. I made over $1,200 to participate in far more time-consuming testing for a study on allergies or asthma or something, which involved getting allergy tests and having my lung output measured after being exposed to mild levels of radiation. Think experiencing two to three x-rays. The study included various appointments over 10 to 12 weeks, but the compensation was so necessary for me to stay in school and be able to, you know, eat food. I don't regret doing the study, especially as I also worked on the researcher side of a bunch of psychological studies, so know how vital having participants is to conducting research that can potentially really help large numbers of people. However, I do hate that I felt I had to pursue this as an option to stay in school. Our system is really frustrating, and I hate that universities cost so damn much in the United States. Anyways, love the show and thanks for all you put into it each week. I listen day of episode drops, a.k.a. every Wednesday and Friday, and look forward to it every week. Cheers, Molly. <laughs> I love that you were like, it's about asthma or allergies or something. I don't know. They put radiation in my lungs. No big deal. I'm just, I'm I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Okay, here's another email about genetic testing. Hi, Gabby and Mal, if Mal's there too. You asked for stories about childcare, pregnancy costs, IVF, abortion, and surrogacy last week, and it reminded me of an experience I had with my doctor when I was first prescribed Accutane, a drug that helps get rid of intense acne, usually cystic or chronic. Apparently, Accutane increases the likelihood of severe birth defects if taken by pregnant women. So when it's prescribed to you, you have to commit to taking two forms of birth control to prevent any pregnancies. As someone who's asexual and sex-averse, I told my doctor I would have no issues not having sex. He responded with prescribing me birth control pills because abstinence only counts as one form of birth control. I live in Canada and had insurance through work, but I still would have had to pay for the birth control pills in addition to the Accutane every time I picked up my prescription. I tried explaining that I wasn't being coy. I really was just not going to have sex. But my doctor wouldn't hear it. Eventually, he said, well, do you want me to write abortion, as in note on my medical record that I was willing to have an abortion to be able to take Accutane? So I stopped trying to explain myself and accepted that for months I was going to be paying for pills I'd never use. At the time, I was about 20 years old and really flustered by the fact that, one, my doctor didn't believe I wouldn't have sex. Two, I didn't know if I was supposed to tell my doctor I was asexual. Three, growing up in an evangelical church, I had been told abortions were bad. I remember attending an afternoon service once where this woman went around reassuring people that they would see their aborted child in heaven and having to hold in snorts of anxious laughter because it seemed ridiculous to me that either party would be looking forward to that. Still believe in God, but don't go to that church anymore. Again, I don't know if this is the kind of story you're looking for. Memories of that appointment just came back like a flood when I heard the request in the last episode. Thanks for all you do. This is an awesome show and I really appreciate it. Cooper. Oh boy, doctors... Doctors can be wild towards women and, and people with uh, uteruses. Oh, boy. This is an email from Suzanne. Good morning, Gabby. I heard you're looking for stories about paid medical testing. I've done this twice, but the second one is a bit more topical. Let me tell you about the time I took part in a vaccine trial. Yeah, vaccine trials. Amazing. I'm so glad we have one of these. In 2019, I had the opportunity to take part in the second stage of a vaccine trial. The vaccine being developed was to protect pregnant people against a virus that can cause birth defects. I was inoculated with either the vaccine or placebo over three separate dosages, having blood tests taken, tracking my temperature daily, and uploading that info on some kind of smartphone, and collecting saliva and urine samples monthly to determine that I was not pregnant. There's something kind of funny about mailing urine samples. Participants were compensated for expenses from parking to taking transit every time they went into the testing facility, as well as for every monthly pregnancy test sample sent in. I do not recall the final amount I was paid, but it was more than $1,000 Canadian money, about $774 U.S. Participants had the option to be paid in cash at the end of the study, but that would be subject to tax. The other option was to get reimbursed monthly for our time on a prepaid credit card. I initially wanted the cash so I could use it for big bills, but decided to go with the credit card option. I'm grateful that I was in the financial position to use the card for spending money, but I imagine some of the participants needed the tangible money they earned for more urgent matters. I don't know why we couldn't just be paid out in cash monthly, but my guess is it had to do with taxation and because in Canada, we legally can't sell our bodies or what's in them. This is most likely aimed at stopping human trafficking, but it also extends to not being legally permitted to sell blood, ovum, sperm, or to be paid to be a birth surrogate or make money from consensual sex work. I did not know that about Canada. If you are Canadian, write in with more information about that. I had no idea that that was the law in Canada. The not pleasant parts of the experience. The nurse administered the first vaccine like he was playing dartboard. I could barely move my arm the next day. My underarm was bruised green and I was in so much pain, I actually spoke to him about it and requested he not inject me like that again. At that point in time, I never stood up for myself, so to actually tell a man that he hurt me was completely out of character. He was genuinely shocked and changed how he gave me the next shot. The day after my first dose, I had such a bad reaction that I considered going to the hospital. I think my fever spiked to 38 degrees Celsius, roughly 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I was intensely nauseated and it took me 20 minutes to sit up after I laid down to let the sick spell pass. Maybe that was a reaction to how the vaccine was delivered. Maybe it was a side effect to whatever was in the syringe. Maybe it was my body telling me, dear God, woman, you're in the middle of bodybuilding prep. What the fuck do you think you're doing? (laughs) I'm so sorry that you had these side effects, but I did not see bodybuilding prep coming. I started to forget things fast. If I had to go from one end of the room at work to the other for whatever reason, I would immediately forget why I was going where I was going. I never remembered the reason. I would also get very dizzy to the point where I felt like someone was intentionally knocking me over. Again, this could have also been because I was cutting for a bodybuilding show and was also about two months sober after nearly a decade of daily drinking. Aside from the above mentioned issues, the experience was okay. The team conducting the trial was very friendly and not judgmental when I had questions. Would I take part in another vaccine trial or medical study? Maybe. It's one way I feel I can contribute to the betterment of humanity. I don't think that people should have to resort to selling their bodies or fluids or take part in medical studies because the financial system has been so manipulated and become so broken that people can't live on their wages or salaries. This should be a choice, not just because there is no better alternative. I love this podcast. It is so well-researched and delivered, and I love the variety and diversity of your guests. I have also joined Team Mal, and I'm excited to hear more of them in the coming episodes. Thank you for your hard work. I look forward each Wednesday and Friday for the new episodes in Mailbags, Sue's. Aw, thank you. Wow, Team Mal is really expanding. There's dozens of you now. Just kidding. I'm going to read a couple more, and then I'm going to hit some Discord comments, and then I will let you go to think about everything you've learned. This is an email from T. Hi there, Gabby and Mal. longtime listener and fan. Mazel tov to you too. I feel like I'm always writing into your show about black queer baby making, but here goes. There's a misconception you can only donate organs to science if post-mortem. But in my case, that wasn't true. I was pregnant and gave birth during the early part of the COVID-19 pandemic. Literally found my wife and I would be moms a week or so before everything went into lockdown in March, 2020. I then gave birth in November, 2020. As a result, lots of folks wanted to study me and our little one. We never contracted the virus while we shared a body, thankfully. We live in the D.C. area, but we ended up in three different studies nationally. I am black and non-binary, so there weren't many folks like me in these studies. I wouldn't usually do this, but they were paid, and I was heading into unpaid leave from work. America hates people who can give birth. The most lucrative study was through the National Children's Hospital. They paid us to do an MRI of my brain and of the babies while still in utero, and then paid me to do surveys and interviews afterward. They also paid us for my placenta and umbilical cord post-birth. Wifey and I literally coordinated with one of the researchers so they could pick up my placenta from the nurse's station shortly after I pushed my little stinker out. We had a cooler prepped and everything. I had a really traumatic birth, but I was determined to make sure we had a nest egg. They'll interview me and our baby yearly until they are six years old, at which point we'll come in for one last checkup and MRI of our brains. Moral of the story. If you ever find yourself pregnant during a deadly global pandemic, the likes of which we have never seen, do a Google search to see if there are any paid university or research sponsored studies you can be a part of. Even if they aren't offering money, just ask. They'll usually cough up something. I did this with one of the university sponsored studies and they paid us in multiple visa gift cards, lol. Keep up the amazing work with the show and congrats again. (laughs) Thank you so much, T. Uh, So now I'm going to read some Discord comments and then I will leave you to ruminate and think. This is similar to what T just talked about. Uh, This is a comment from the Discord. Women and intersex and non-binary people are also horribly underrepresented in medical research in general. Until relatively recently, women weren't allowed to participate in research studies at all. I can't remember the particulars, but I learned this from the book Diagnosis Female. I should check out that book. Here is a Discord comment. Not going to lie, all the letters about selling plasma have made me feel like a real chump for donating mine. And then someone responded. I believe they do different things with plasma based on whether it was sold or donated. Plus, people need blood. People need plasma. If you want to give as a charity rather than as a source of income, I don't think that makes you a chump. To be clear, I also don't think there's any moral failing if you sell. I've considered selling plasma because, you know, I'm poor. I don't because I'm a really good candidate for platelet donations. My platelet count is always above 500. This is very high. But you can't sell platelets the way you can plasma. I think technically, legally, you aren't selling the plasma. You're donating it. That's why you get gift cards instead of cash or checks. I frequently get e-gift cards for giving platelets, but these are only ever between $10 and $20. Anyway, you're not a chump. I love that you guys support each other. So this is another comment. A friend who just had her first child texted me about having to find a second job since having a child increased their health insurance costs by $1,200 a month. The second job will be writing or selling plasma or both. Baby is just over a month old, so sleep schedules are non-existent and remote work is not an option. I informed her that if she gets anywhere near an MLM, I will stage an intervention. (laughs) You're a good friend. (laughs) You're a very good friend. Okay, so this is our last comment, and it's from the Discord. I know there is a lot of fear around hurting the fetus, especially after the thalidomide incidents in the 50s and 60s, which don't Google image but do look into because it is is really terrifying. I get it because there is really not an ethical way to test if something will hurt a developing baby, as most people would rather be safe than sorry. It sucks, but I'm not sure how you get around it. And someone responded... We're developing better capabilities to test drugs on living tissue samples. So that's probably the way of the future. We'll just need to use stem cells to grow tissues that are found in fetuses. Basically, my takeaway from from those in the end is that science is moving forward. uh, And I think there will be a lot of advances in technology that will, you know, it's up to us whether we use them for good or for evil. I want to say, again, thank you so, so much to everyone who wrote in or called in and shared their experience. This is this is something that is not often talked about. I mean, I read a lot of money books. I read a lot. And there is a lack of ability to comprehend or an unwillingness to include the realities of lives of people that are not of a certain subset or economic class in advice or in these books, right? So like you almost never see these books talk about sex work. You never see these books talk about medical research. You never see these books talk about selling plasma because it's, it, it's unfortunate and it's ugly and it's frustrating. And these are not things that people working in money media want Americans to think about or talk about or consider. And I have found myself incredibly frustrated with the ways in which very real parts of people's real lives are treated like they don't exist in these, in these financial books and on these podcasts. So thank you so much to everyone for writing in. And I hope, I hope that this at least feels grounded in reality. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like there's just so much that I see left out because it's easier to say save for three to six months than it is to confront how people do that. So Thank you so much to everyone for writing in. If you want to write in more, you can do so at gabbyisbadwithmoney at gmail.com. You can also call in at 844-474-4040. You can leave a voice memo if you prefer. All the links to our socials will be in the episode description below. Please leave me a five-star Apple review. I would really appreciate that. And don't forget to listen to the show the day it drops so we can get on the charts and spread the word. We have some amazing episodes coming up. If you want to write in, we're doing a write-in episode about scams and we're doing a write-in episode about the cost of transitioning. We've already got some really great emails from both of those. So please continue to call in and send in your voicemails and emails about those and voice memos. Next week, we're going to do some breakdowns and takedowns. Okay, love you guys. Bye. (laughs)